Hello, and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Ben Vogley, and I'm a 22 at Dartmouth. Today, I was joined by Janos Martin, the National Director of Dream Corps Justice. Janos attended Dartmouth as a member of the Class of 2004, where he served as student body president for two years before going on to attend Fordham Law School. In 2016, Janos launched the successful campaign to close Rikers Island, and since then, he has run criminal justice campaigns across the country. In 2020, Janos ran for Manhattan District Attorney on a decarceration platform that became a gold standard in the race. Today, Janos leads a team at DreamCorps focused on closing prison doors and opening the doors of opportunity. Janos and I had a fascinating conversation that covered Janos's very interesting career and his thoughts on criminal justice reform in the United States. I think you'll enjoy it. So, without further ado, here's Janos Martin. Janos, it's great to have you with us today. It's great to be here. Always great to be at a Dartmouth-related event. Absolutely. Um, so to start off, could you tell us a bit about yourself and how you moved from Dartmouth to a career in law and activism? Definitely. Uh, you know, when I came to Dartmouth, I was uh, definitely somebody who was passionate about social justice issues, um, but I was not very familiar with politics or how government works or how to make change as an organizer. And I learned all of those things during my time at Dartmouth. Um, I organized against the war. I got very involved in student politics. I served as student by president. And I got very involved in the 2004 Democratic primary, which, like so many Democratic primaries, uh, routed right through New Hampshire. And uh, yeah. Yeah, those accumulation of experiences led to me becoming an organizer after college. I came home to New York City for law school. And, you know, I've done a lot of interesting work since then, but the genesis was definitely during my time in Hanover. Yeah, that's really fantastic. And I mean, I got to experience the 2020 primary right before COVID set in. It was an absolutely electrifying experience. So I can imagine that you had a lot of fun and learned a lot uh, back in 2004. Uh, and you're with the Rockefeller Center today because you just moderated very ably an event with two other Dartmouth alums on the successes and failures of the Biden administration. And so I'm curious, we just passed the first 100 days of Biden's presidency on April 30th. And I'm wondering what your general impressions are of what has gone well and what has gone poorly uh, over the course of this administration. Sure. So. I think for any administration in government, whether you're talking about the presidency or the mayor of a small town, step one is you have to, uh, when you come into office, you have to establish some kind of baseline, uh, some kind of cadence for governance. And without that, um, the entire administration is chaotic, as we experienced for the last four years previously during President Trump, and that we've often experienced on the local level in different parts of the country. So I think coming into a situation where COVID was still raging, where there had just been that attack on the Capitol, um, Joe Biden's first job was to establish some normalcy and get government running again. And I think by those measures, he's done extremely well. Uh, there's a sort of common stability in the country right now. The vaccination process has gone really well. Um, you know, money is in people's hands through COVID relief. Uh, so that's all stuff that he should be um, proud of. I think uh, the question will be going forward, um, does he have a policy agenda that both um, 
keeps uh, keeps America United behind him. He's got a high approval rating now, while at the same time uh, matches the expectations of progressive groups that many of which worked very hard to put him over the top in the election, are skeptical of him because of his career as a uh, sort of corporate moderate, um, and, and people who have really been uh, representing communities that have struggled and suffered uh, first um, you know, because of Trump policies and then because of COVID. So I think uh, there's generally a warm feeling now, and, and the question will be, can he parlay that into a strong uh, legislative set of achievements? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think we've all definitely felt the temperature lower pretty palpably over the past few months, and that's great. But uh, I'd also love to get into a discussion of some of the policies that Biden could adopt going forward to make America a better place. Um, So I I think one of the more memorable aspects of the past few months was the conviction of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd. Um, What does the Chauvin conviction say to you about America's slow progress toward racial justice and the future of policing in the United States? Oh, well, I don't know if it says too much about any positive direction of justice. Um, I think, Mm. I I mean, it's, it's, uh, it it feels like the bare minimum. It feels like the floor. Uh, You know, when I was, as as somebody who works at a criminal justice organization, I'm the national director of Dream Corps Justice, like many people, um, me and my team were glued around uh, our, our computer screens watching CNN waiting for the verdict. And I, I really felt mm-hmm. that if the verdict had come down not guilty, um, we would have seen immense uh, pain and, and destruction that would have followed. And the fact that we were so close to that in a situation that couldn't have been more brazenly clear, you know, why did we have to wait on the needles to find out if the verdict was guilty in a situation where all of us could watch a nine minute video of a person being you know, tortured to death and then left there uh, after he'd been killed. Uh, you know, I think that was uh, the fact that that's where we were is a sign of how much, how much further we have to go. Um, did the system work in this case? Yes. But this is also a situation which the police uh, other than Chauvin cooperated in the trial, which is very unusual. It's a situation where we had a very, um, principled and aggressive uh, prosecutor taking on the case, which is not always the situation. So, you know, you had a lot of things line up for that moment. I think, um, you know, there are policy solutions to this, right? There are, there are definitely police reforms that can be enacted at the local level across the country, but there's a much broader issue uh, around trust that's been uh, always been broken or tenuous between law enforcement and communities of color that is just, you know, as... Um, as antagonistic as it's ever been. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that needs to be healed and repaired in some way um, if we're going to move forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think you're right. This was more of a prosecution of Chauvin than it was of America's policing system. This decision related to him, and it, I don't think, rectified anything more systemic. Um, and you also, I should mention here, ran a campaign for Manhattan DA, largely grounded in a desire to see criminal justice reform, including, I think, decarcerating Manhattan by 80%, eliminating solitary confinement, and combating wage theft. So, you know, with all of that in mind, what do you think needs to change on a national level to move America toward a more just criminal justice system? Yeah, well, absolutely. I think that we need to, uh, where we've gotten stuck on things like police reform and and criminal justice reform is uh, thinking that changing those systems uh, by themselves in a vacuum is going to change the overall uh, 
mindset of, of, of uh, the, to minimize the discord communities have between each other, get people to trust the system. Uh, I think what communities of color need, historically marginalized communities need, is to be treated as human, to be invested in as people. And that, that really is the path forward. The solutions to crime, for example, are largely not rooted in solutions offered by the criminal justice system. That was a big message of our campaign for Manhattan District Attorney and why we said we would only use jail as an absolute last resort because jail is not really a solution that helps anybody. It can take uh, the occasional very dangerous person off the street for some period of time, but it's not healing the person. It's not addressing the underlying trauma of where they've come from. It doesn't do anything for the victim. And that... You can just magnify that writ large um, when you're talking about what do we do um, post post uh, trial of, of Chauvin. You know, we're talking about a situation in which um, we still have many uh, uh, communities in this country that are racially segregated, very poor, not invested in by the private sector or government. And I think if we want to change the patterns that got us to where we are. Um, that's, that's where we need to, to invest in people. We need to make sure everybody has an opportunity for success in this country and that everybody's seen as, as a valued person in this country. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It doesn't just start at criminal justice. There are so many other you know important economic and racial issues that we need to address along with that. So it's a big challenge. And you know I, like you, hope that our country is up to the task. Uh you know, moving back a bit to Biden, you mentioned that he was sort of this corporate centrist kind of politician. And do you think that he's making moves in the right direction when it comes to criminal justice? Yeah. You know, one thing that I have um, learned about Biden and, and certainly been told about him from people who have a much better understanding of how he operates than I do is that he's somebody who moves uh, with the Democratic Party. He tries very hard to be um, not in the vanguard. You'll rarely see him lead on an issue, a uh, so-called progressive issue. Um, but he tends to come along. And that sort of explains how, you know, in the 80s and 90s, he was one of the main perpetrators of the war on drugs. He was one of the architects of our ma- modern mass incarceration system. I don't think he's that man today. Uh, I believe people who say that he's moved on that issue. Uh, I mean, I've, I obviously have heard his rhetoric like like all of us, yeah, everybody has, but it seems that his movement on that issue is sincere, just as you know his movement on uh, foreign policy is sincere. When I was at Dartmouth, um, you know, he was one of the main hawks pushing for a war in Iraq, and his hawkishness made it very hard for uh, Democrats to stand up to George Bush because George Bush had a, could just point to uh, a senator in their own party uh, echoing his lines. And so uh, everything suggests that today he is not that person. He's got a more circumspect view of, of military uh, usage. And so uh, I think Joe Biden personally has evolved. I think he's put people in his administration who are at least sympathetic towards criminal justice. And the question will be how much energy he puts into it. You may have noticed that it was not mentioned during his address to Congress. Uh, there was a passing reference to George Floyd policing bill, which you know, will make very modest reforms to policing policies, but it's not actually a criminal justice solution. Um, so, you know, I think he will probably not be a leader on criminal justice. The question, though, is, you know, what will he do if there's momentum around a criminal justice issue? I'm cautiously optimistic that, you know, if organizations like ours can get bipartisan criminal justice legislation through or close to the finish line, he will support it. He will sign it. Um, and, and he may champion it afterwards, um, but I don't think he's going to be you know, leading the cavalry. I got you. 
Um, building off of that a bit, this is my you know potentially incorrect perception, but I do feel like a lot of these district attorney races in New York City have kind of been bellwethers for where criminal justice reform is headed in the country writ large. Um, like the race between Melinda Katz and Tiffany Caban um, last year, for example, was widely followed. And I'm wondering what you think of the current state of the race for Manhattan DA and if it's going to um, you know, wind up representing a lot of the values that you've just spoken of. Gosh, the current race, uh, you know, I've, I know all the candidates. I've spoken to, to most of them at length. And um, I do think uh, I'll start with the, the, the glass half full side. Uh, you know, we pushed really uh, far reaching progressive policies uh, when we were in the race. And I think most of them uh, have been adopted by at least some of the candidates, if not the overwhelming majority of the candidates. I think where uh, you see a real sign of progress is that you cannot run for district attorney of a major city in the United States in 2021, 2022, and onwards uh, without making a claim to be a criminal justice reformer. Uh, that is that is a sign of a healthy organizing movement that's made that possible. Um, you know, the reason that's half full is that you know you don't necessarily have to be a criminal justice reformer if you if you can parrot the right words. And um, certainly in the race between Melinda Katz and Tiffany Caban, uh, you know, there's this uh, no, notable moment during uh, one of their debates where she was seated next to Caban and thus speaking after her, and would routinely say, "Well, you know, I agree with Tiffany because it was her job to obscure and mask differences between Tiffany, who was a real." you know, transformative, uh, radical candidate and, and herself so that people say, well, if they basically agree, then we'll probably go with the person who's, you know, got a little bit more gray hair. And that's sort of the dynamic that you see in Manhattan DA's race too, is that Tali Weinstein for Hadian is, you know, a married to a hedge fund billionaire, uh, and, uh, comes from that, uh, social class. Uh, and I think it's really inappropriate for somebody comes from the billionaire class to be in charge of transforming a criminal legal system that largely affects not just people of color, but literally the poorest people of color in the city. That's the people who most regularly wind up in our court system. Um, and the reason she's able to do that is that she uses the language of criminal justice reform while spending millions of dollars on mailers and TV ads. So I'm hopeful that you know my preferred candidate, Alvin Bragg, is, is going to put together a winning coalition and defeat her. Um, uh, and I think you know this race is uh, fluid enough that there are probably three or four different candidates who could make a strong play. Um, but it's going to be very unpredictable down to the end. Yeah, for sure. That's a really interesting description. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, I'm pivoting, or I'm going to pivot now a bit to your time at Dartmouth. You mentioned that you were organizing against the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I'm wondering if you could talk a bit more about what that was like. Uh, what was it like influencing campus politics? Yeah, I mean, it was it, it was an incredible time um, just in the country, uh, to be young and to be mm -hmm. figuring out how politics works. Uh, I was, I'm born and raised in New York city. And uh, I mean, a Dartmouth wrinkle to this is that when September 11th happened, um, all of my friends from high school were uh, at their colleges, but I was not because of the Dartmouth calendar. I was in New York city. Uh, Cause you know, Dartmouth, oh, yeah. And yeah. so, so I, you know, I was, I was here for it. I, you know, I, I was a runner at the time. I remember jogging down as close as we, you know, we was permitted to sort of see what was happening at the site um, and came up to, and I remember that night George Bush talked about, 
you know, avenging the people who had been attacked on 9-11. And I remember, you know, that night, that very first night, I'd gone to a candlelight vigil outside a firehouse that had been organized impromptu by some Upper West Siders. And I remember thinking, being outraged by that and saying, you know, this, we are not asking for this to be a cause for war, for more people to die, for there to be destruction in a foreign country where most people probably had no idea what even happened that day. And, um, I came up to Dartmouth and, uh, there were students uh, organizing a van ride down to this anti-war protest in D.C. And it was quite remarkable. We took a couple of vans. Most of us had never met each other. Um, we just was sort of word of mouth. That, and, and that group of people really became, uh, some of them are close friends to this day, that group of people really became the sort of, the sort of progressive left activist hub uh, for a variety of issues, whether it was environmental or campus issues um, or, or things of that nature over the next few years. Um, and it was sort of forged by this uh, overnight van ride from Hanover to D.C. for a protest several days after classes started. Wow. Yeah, what a way to start the year. That's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, down to the fact that, you know, for, for those who are a bit younger, you know, when 9-11 happens, uh, the, the, def- the, the sort of pivot to patriotism uh, was something really to behold. And, you know, as somebody who was a child, child of immigrants, uh, you know, both of whom were perfectly, were perfectly pro-United States. But, you know, having that internationalist perspective that the U.S. isn't the only country that matters, um, you know, Main Street was just covered in these enormous American flags. You know, flags were everywhere. They were on cars, you know. Um, and it was uh, that I remember coming back to, to Hanover that first day and just seeing these flags as far as the eye can see down Main Street. It was like a... Yeah, it's quite an environment. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, you know, I grew up in that post 9-11 environment, but I really have no memory of what it was like immediately after the attacks. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I'm going to pivot a bit again. Um, you went ahead and got a law degree at Fordham after you graduated from Dartmouth. And I'm wondering what your view is on how valuable uh, law degree is for doing the kind of advocacy work that you know you've spent your entire career engaging in. Yeah, that's a, it, it's a tough one. I found that uh, over the years, many many people have asked, said that they're thinking about law school and, and what what advice would I give? And I've come to realize that if somebody's thinking about law school, that means they probably want to go to law school, and there's nothing I can say or do to talk them out of it. Uh, <laughs> so I'll say, if you're the kind of person who who thinks they're going to wind up in law school, then you probably will. Um, I, I don't think it's essential to do the kind of work that I'm doing, uh, far from it. Um, you know, I sort of actually uh, have migrated further and further away from, you know, the day-to-day work of being a lawyer. Uh, although I do think having a law degree and having that legal experience, um, gave me some career opportunities I wouldn't have had, had otherwise earlier in my career. But, but here's the conclusion that I, you know, I've come to having really found my groove in the last five or six years in the work that I'm doing around large scale criminal justice reform efforts, which is that at the end of the day, um, you know, everybody has a certain set of talents, a certain set of skills, and you are really just going to thrive and be at your best when you're in a kind of work environment that you love. And uh, the reality is, like, I was never going to be in a, a truly elite litigator because, you know, litigation, which is, you know, most of what lawyers do, is very solitary. It's very uh, attention to detail oriented. Um, it's not big picture. It's not you know, doesn't involve working collaboratively as much with others. And so, you know, I, I started moving away from that into the kind of work I do now. So when people are considering whether or not they need to go to law school to do the kind of work they want to do, what they should really just do is figure out what they really want to do, if that's environment or pro-choice or LGBTQ rights or whatever it is, 
and then just immerse yourself in that space and see, you know, the best way to make an impact in that space. And it might be being a lawyer, um, but it might not. And I think that's, and, and, and I definitely, definitely think that people should not go straight from college to law school. And I would double down and say people should definitely not go straight from Dartmouth to law school because, um, because you really ought to know a little bit about how the world works, uh, you know, before you start your legal career. And, um, you know, if you've been in Hanover the last four years, you're not going to have a great sense of it. I think those are wise words. All right, Giannis, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. This was a very interesting conversation. Of course, a pleasure to be with you, Ben. Have a good one. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Hemlock. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. If you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.